Hi, everybody. Brian Barry here. I'm joined by my co-host, Patricia Montestioka. This is Inside Insights, a podcast powered by Zappi. Patricia, how's it going? It's going really well. It's going. It's a really vaccination well. day for you, Patricia. Vaccination, the second dose vaccination day for me. It's um, it's a little bit gray and a little bit wet, but it's warm, so I'm not going to complain at all. So you know, yeah, spring yeah. is absolutely here. When I walk my grandson a dog, by the way. Um, I see the shoots coming up and the flowers and the crook. I'm just excited. I love spring. I love spring too. New beginnings. And it was a super long winter. Um, so it's <laughs> nice. So yeah, this, this episode will come out uh, probably in a few days, but what, you know, yesterday was in the seventies in Boston. I wore shorts. I got a sunburn on my face. Damn. Yep. And I'm excited about that. And I'm, I'm as you know, I'm in the midst of, I, maybe you don't know this about me. I'm in the midst of boycotting zoom wherever possible. So I've been switching as many of my meetings as possible, of course, when I don't need to uh, look at somebody or read something, to walks. And uh, it's been great. So I recommend everybody take a walk today. Um, I'm really excited uh, for today's episode. Um, we are going to be interviewing Karen Kraft, who is the Senior Insights Manager at Johnsonville. Um, I've actually known Karen for pretty much the whole time Zappy's been in existence. I met her over mojitos at a WPP event in Miami. I want to meet more people over mojitos, by the way, because I remember we had a lot of fun talking about where this industry was going. And um, the truth is, I never knew if we would end up partnering with Karen and if I would really get to know her beyond that dinner. And um, I'm glad that that's not the case and that Karen's worked with us in a couple of companies and I've gotten to know her. Um, What I like about Karen is she's got, no ego, but she's so confident. She's like so talented at getting into the details, but also translating consumer feedback into something that business people can understand. And she operates with, um, with just such humility that I was just always impressed by her. And the reason I, I focus in on no ego and humility with Karen is she's really badass. Um, she's really good at her work. Um, but even like, she, she just won't be the first one to tell you about it. And this, so for me, studying how she works in this episode is going to be a treat because we're going to get a glimpse into somebody who's just navigating business really well and actually integrating consumers into the process. Um, I don't know her as long as I haven't known her as long as you have, but I'm impressed by, I mean, going back to what we're doing here today, you and I, we're helping people get shit done. She gets it done. She gets it done and she's done it. You know how you have to, you know, people think, oh, they did it in that company because she's done it in two companies that I'm aware of. And I'm sure if I go and see her other examples, they're even better, but she's just kind of smoothly gotten it done and then repeated the success. So this is not a fluke. She's got it to take it. She's got it going on. So let's talk to Karen. What do you think? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of Inside Insights. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Karen Kraft, uh, somebody who I actually met over a dinner with way too many mojitos in Miami, and I've come to work with and know um, very well over the course of the last couple of years. Hi, Karen. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So rather than me uh, introduce you by your job title, um, I wanted to ask you a question, which will allow you to back into uh, your own introduction. I'm always astounded, Karen, by corporate insights people who started their career on the agency side. And I've known you for a while, but I didn't know you used to work for Jerry at Decision Analyst, who's somebody who I respect a lot. 
And so I'd love you to contrast your early days in your career and insights, how you got to them and what eventually led you to go to the corporate side of things. Um, and that will serve as your intro versus reading your job title for everybody. Okay. My insights career started extremely young. Uh, my mom started as a bookkeeper at a market research firm in Los Angeles when I was six. Oh, cool. Um, so I literally grew up coloring on the back of unused questionnaires. My older siblings used to do movie exit interviews. And about when I was eight, they would bring home boxes of unused questionnaires that were a cardstock with golf pencils taped to the paper. And they would leave it on the living room floor. On, and on Saturday morning, I'd wake up and they'd pay me a little bit each weekend to take all the pencils back off and put them back in the box so they could be used the next weekend. So by the time I was in high school, I'd go in, help my mom in the office and just kind of did everything. My first job was writing, helping type up on a typewriter invoices for market research studies. Um, then I worked in the copy room with my brother and it became a job that I worked my way through college. So then when I went to college, I was a, had a degree in social studies. And I added a major of anthropology. And I remember when I got the major sheet, the, the sheet that described what you can do with your major, market research was on there. And I laughed. I was like, no way, not going to do it. I've done this all my life. I'm going to go be an anthropologist, live out in the wild with somebody and you know, study people. A few years later, when I graduated, I realized, hey, wait, I could just like go to grad school and it takes seven years to get a doctorate. And that's what you, what you need to do anything in anthropology, or I could stay in market research. So I chose to did that for a couple more years at the same firm, got a little restless, went and worked on a cruise ship in Hawaii for a couple of years, met my husband. And then after that, we moved to Texas and because we needed to make sure we liked each other on land. <laughs> yeah. Again. On cruise is different than on land, right? Yeah. And then that's when I, I turned out my first apartment was about a mile from Decision Analyst, which Jerry Thomas owns. And I decided, well, I could go back to stay in hospitality or go back to market research. And I thought, ah, oh, probably as a career, market research is better. So I did that and I worked in client service for them for about 11 years. I really appreciate having all the vendor experience. All told, it's, I counted about a total of 16 years experience. Really appreciate it because it really gives me perspective of what can and can't do. And it gave me a great foundation of just the basics of market research. What is good research? And I found that a lot of corporate researchers that haven't worked on the vendor side don't have those building blocks. And like now, yes, you can take masters of market research classes and things to learn those things. But there's a lot of people that don't have that basic knowledge. So then when I did decide to make the move and become a market research client, it gave me all kinds of tools that I knew how to make sure I could identify what was good research. Not that I was having to do it myself anymore, but that I could recognize, you know, when someone was BSing me in a proposal or when somebody, you know, had, was introducing a new technique, but the foundation of it was really sound and I wanted to try it out. So that's when, you know, I got into the food industry. I worked for Hormel for seven years. And then I've been at Johnsonville for the last two leading consumer insights. So, and 
staying in the food industry. I know way more than the average person about meat and especially now about sausage. <laughs> I, I told you this, uh, not, not before this interview, but many months ago. Um, I remember it at the, at the early onset of the pandemic, all you could find was bratwurst. And I, I think, I think I bought more Johnsonville sausage in that month than ever. And it was just funny. Cause I always would just think of you at the shelf, like, well, one business is doing just fine right now. <laughs> you know? There's something about your background that I find fascinating, obviously your family roots, but I find Karen, every time I see a corporate insights person that I really admire in terms of pragmatism, technical understanding, uh, the ability to work with partners, not vendors, and also people who get promoted and grow their departments, there is a strong correlation with used to work on the vendor side. And I see, and it's not to say that people who haven't aren't, aren't all so awesome, but it's very rare that I see somebody who has a vendor side experience has gone to the client side and has struggled. Um, so, so I think you unpack some of it, right? So there's a technical orientation. There's an empathy that you, that you have to generate. There's probably juggling a lot of different balls. And I'm, I'm sure at your time at Hormel and Johnsonville, you've interacted with or led insights people who haven't had the benefit. So for the folks on the phone listening who were like, okay, I started on a brand manager rotation and fell into insights. What are some, what are some pieces of advice that you might have of like, hey, here's some ways you can actually create that empathy and technical understanding? Because to your point, not everybody's going to have the headspace to go do an MMR online certification program. I think the one thing that being on the vendor side really taught me was to learn how to be a consultant and to learn how to develop relationships. Cause when you're on the vendor side, you're, you're having to sell, you are ma maintaining a client relationship and, and you're having to understand what is your client need. And when you go to the client side, you still have lots of inter internal clients, lots of internal customers that, you're not doing research just for the sake of yourself. You're doing it on behalf of other marketers, other senior leaders in the company. And you have to be able to identify what and understand what are they trying to learn? What are they trying to decide? And I think that's something that when you're on the vendor side, that is a, that comes naturally because you, you have to do it. You're taking something that you have no background on and having to take it and own it and then deliver a product. And when you do, when you have that consultative mindset as a corporate researcher, then you, it makes sure that you're doing what you need to do to get the business question answered. And I think it helps you make sure that you're not being an order taker of someone saying, Hey, I want this, this copy test done. It's no, what are you trying to learn? What do you want to know about the ad? And then I'll recommend the right kind of test. So I think for someone who's never worked on the vendor side to really think of, how do you improve your consulting skills is probably one of the most valuable skills because it's that identifying what's the problem that you're trying to solve, what's the business question you're trying to answer, and then coming up with the solution for it. And if you don't have a lot of personal experience in methodology and different study designs, also taking the time to create really trusted relationships with vendors so that you can have some vendors that even if you're not going to use them, you can call them and say, hey, I'm trying to solve this problem. How do you think it would be solved? And a good vendor will say, you need to do this kind of research and we're not the experts. And it's it, creating those relationships. A lot of it, I would say 90% um, of success has to do with relationship building. 
whether it's building relationships with your vendors so they can they'll they can give you good advice and they can do something for you in a pinch when you need it as well as creating relationships with your internal customers so that you can understand what are they needing and they can rely on you for to be a, a trusted consultant. I love that point. And I feel like there's a benefit for people if they're listening to your advice, even if they didn't have the classical training, because if you can have a consultative relationship with your stakeholders, you can have a macro level understanding of the types of things that they need. And, you know, content marketing is real. So if you understand your business needs, it's actually quite easy to get educated right now. You know, various different platforms, websites, and to your point, the trusted relationships that you form. And I think a lot of times people struggle with the trusted advice because they haven't connected those relationships enough internally so that when they go externally, they're like, please just fill out my order vendor. I don't have time to deal with this. And so the vendor on the other side pulls back and is like, okay, I don't know enough to help you, right? So it is sort of a two-way street. So the next question I have for you, it strikes me that you're somebody who has a growth mindset. To me, a growth mindset is somebody who's always looking to improve, is always looking to learn and unlearn new behaviors and sort of challenge the the status quo. Um, I don't think I've got this wrong about you, but if I have, please let me know. I've been inspired by how quickly you've learned and unlearned tools, technologies, behaviors, ways of working, et cetera. How do you go about that in your day-to-day? And what are some of the, I guess, practices or hacks that you have? Or if nothing else, if you haven't even thought of hacks, how do you just go about that constant evolution of, of Karen, the, the, the professional and the partner? I think a lot of it just has to do with being naturally curious. Hmm. Consumer insights professionals, a good one. And that's something like when I'm looking to hire someone, I have to understand, are they a curious person? And when you're looking for someone that their job is to study people and study behavior and, and look for trends, those people are naturally curious. And that is, that's a type of learning mindset that you're in every day for your job. So to me, it almost is a natural extension and it's hard to say how I do it because, because I'm curious about why consumers do what they do or why trends are happening or what things take off and what they don't. It makes me curious about my own job and, you know, what's the latest technologies in the, in the industry or what's the latest methods and using that same curious mindset of paying attention to what, what is going on in the industry. If I just stayed in a box and, and did the same thing over and over, frankly, it would be really boring. So I think a lot of it has to do with just a desire to learn because that's kind of what my job is. I'm, I'm a bit of a detective anyway. So I'm also curious about my job and, and again, you having that great filter from my background of knowing, being able to sniff out good research versus hokey stuff, I can put everything through that filter and decide what I'm going to take in and what I'm not. And, you know, I never really unlearn anything. I just kind of put it on the back burner and you never know when some skill that you learned 20 years ago is going to come in handy for some random project. <laughs> it's there. It's back there. It just doesn't get used every day. I really like your answer. I mean, I've been thinking about this with my own work of of recruitment and friend of mine who's built and sold many companies. I had this discussion with him of, Hey, how do you hire people who care, who are coachable, who have a growth mindset? And it's really hard to actually instill that in somebody. 
And so what I've learned over the years is if somebody doesn't have that natural curiosity or desire to learn and unlearn, it probably just means that it doesn't mean that they don't have it. It just means that they're perhaps not in the role that they were meant to be in. They're not, they're not doing something that their superpowers are, are grounded in. Let's take the other side of this. Market research as a trade has gotten, I don't think unfairly branded, risk averse, overly academic, averse to change in years prior. Now, I'm personally of the opinion that that is an outdated moniker for us as an industry. I, I feel like this industry has gone from talking about change to changing pretty quickly. Um, and I, we could talk about that for an hour. How have you gone about socializing change, bringing an organization along with you in a world where there's trend lines and models that are built up over long years of, um, of, of trend lines, um, attribution that potentially was done at a point in time that is no longer relevant. How, how do you go about that? Because it's, it, there's a lot of organizational inertia that even somebody with a growth mind and a curious mind like yours, I'm sure faces on a day-to-day basis when you're trying new approaches or trying to change the way an organization works or does things. Probably two different ways. The first is start small. Whenever I want to try something new, different that I know will raise eyebrows, I look for a small, low risk opportunity when possible. Oftentimes I partner with vendors on pilots to try out a new technology where I know I might get a a bargain basement price or even some free research just to try it out. And then I can then use some of my budget or I can have the luxury of testing something I've already done in in a method that has already been tried and true and is believed by my internal stakeholders. So then I can compare and contrast what did we learn with this method versus what did we didn't? Should we include this in our in our toolbox moving forward. Um, and the other, the other way is to recognize when you just need to cut the cord, when something just needs to change. And to me, that reminds me of back when I was still on the vendor side and companies were hesitant to move their tracking studies from the phone to the internet. And people were like, how are we gonna trend the data? Like. And you, we just got to the point where as a company, we were recommending, you're not going to trend it. You're going to cut the cord. You're going to, we're going to look, you know, are the number one brands still number one? Is, you know, does it pass the sniff test in terms of the absolute rank? But here are all the reasons this old, old methodology isn't working anymore. People aren't answering the phone. People don't even have phones anymore. They're using their cell phone and we can't call cell phones versus six at that point, 60% of Americans were on the internet. So it's just, it's just, you have to recognize when times have changed and things are outdated. So, you know, there are times when you can do it in baby steps, but there are times where you just have to do it in leaps and bounds and you just have to really prove why the old method isn't viable anymore because times have changed and consumers have changed. And I think when you can create that and you can put it in the context of where you get everyone nodding, yeah, I don't answer the phone anymore. And I'd want myself to be included in a tracking study. Once you can get people nodding their head, then change isn't as, pro- isn't as hard, especially when you have to make those huge changes. I love the last bit, right? So you're bringing it, you're making it real for people. Like when's the last time you picked up the phone and took a survey? Fictitious trend line example that I'm sure has never happened, Karen, in real life. We're <laughs> yeah. just of course, making this up. Um, <laughs> because pe- people do, I mean, it's one of like, you know, there's old, old books that I read about human behavior that are still relevant and people respond more to stories 
in many cases than facts. I mean, uh, you know, I love like, you know, the qual and quant debates and how one video excerpt from a survey of a thousand people can change the whole direction of a company. It's just nice that you have some data nowadays to back it up. Um, but that storytelling component's really cool. I think the other profound insight that you share is that low risk calibration side by side, whatever you want to call it to say, this is the currency we've been using and here's how it compares to the thing we should be using. And I, I think that there's, that's a low risk way to socialize change. And I know it's something you've done. Um, you've done quite a bit. Um, and, and then, so when you make those two proof points, is your experience that it's been easy to get the stakeholders, your brand managers, your innovation teams at that point to then come along for the ride? Yeah. And the other way I reduce the barriers is if I have any budget of my own to try it, doesn't hit their personal budget. That's that's even the easiest sell of all. Doesn't always happen. And I know a lot of corporate researchers don't have their own budgets, but there have been times where I've gotten a little bit of, of money of my own that I could spend at my own discretion. I can say, hey, we can try this and I'm going to give it to you for free. And then that really reduces all of the barriers. But in generally, in general, I've found that it works because then if we try it and I don't agree with it, I don't think it worked, then I can say, hey, you know, we need to not do this again. And this is why. And, and pretty much everyone, you know, we've, we all come to agreement like, yeah, that just wasn't for us. And so we tried it. No one, no one's any worse for the wear. We got what we needed to know, but it just didn't work for us as well as it did. So we're going to move on. That's another important insight. Kat. You're not afraid to fail but you're limiting your exposure on these failures. I mean, I'm sure for every new thing you've found that you are now integrating, there's probably three, four X as many that didn't make a sense. Um, and I think that's something that particularly big companies need to learn is that embracing of failure because failure is a form of learning. Um, I, I love that that's, that's kind of you know, how, how you've gone about that. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. Let me ask you another question. So I also am struck by your ability to learn new skills, learn new software. Um, we have an industry that historically wasn't as hands-on as it now is. I think the latest SMR data suggests that over 50% of projects in 2020 were insourced, insourced in some capacity, right? So it means a lot of different things depending on the methodology. How have you maintained an ability to use software to do your job? Because you, you use probably more software platforms than the average person does to do your job. But you don't strike me as somebody who programs surveys all day. You strike me as somebody who's integrated with your, your business teams. So it's a two-part question, Karen. How, do you, how have you learned to use software to do your job? And how do you make that not prohibitive to you being an impactful business partner? Just a lot of that comes from my roots of, I've you know, been, I've held jobs that work in the mailroom. I, you know, I can still un, unjam a copy copy machine <laughs> super fast because I've had to run big copiers. Um, yep. But and and a lot do, having done a lot of secretarial work in my early in my career that you know had to learn software very quickly, especially at one point in my career I was a temp and right. <laughs> so just and just being comfortable and knowing that especially like most market research software is pretty idiot proof. So I'm not going to break it. <laughs> um, and if I do, then there's a serious problem there, but that, you know, a lot of people's problem with technology is they're afraid to try it. Just yesterday I was in Excel and a vendor had sent me some data and I was using it 
going to be using it for a different reason. I just made a copy of the original sheet to another sheet so that I could mess with it and be and be free that if I screwed it up to the point where I didn't feel comfortable, I you know couldn't find the formula that I put in that was wrong, I could scrap it and start over. So I think it's just like, I feel like when I'm working with new software, I have an inherent safety net and I'm not afraid to to go out and walk that tightrope and see how far I can get on my own. And it's just literally, I think, more kind of an adventurous mindset of, oh, let's see what we can do with this rather than, oh my gosh, it's a new software. And I think that's just kind of, a lot of it is just a personality trait of not being afraid to try. And that's part of your kind of experimental process. I want to ask you, I want to go back to that experimentation Mm -hmm. process for a second. Then I want to come back to stakeholder engagement. You know, you said, you said to me, okay, I will, if I have some budget, I will use some of it. And I think budgeting for insights is a fascinating dynamic because I've heard some departments tell me that 80% of what they spend isn't their budget. It comes from somewhere else. Some departments, as you say, don't even have a budget. So let's just say you have a budget of a hundred rubies. And, and that could be your, you know, your coming from marketing or, or innovation, but also your insights budget. Do you have a general best practice of like how much you would carve out for experimentational purposes? Or do you kind of view that year to year? And how do you, how do you think about that? Personally, I kind of manage two different research budgets, the general consumer insights budget and then the innovation insights budget, both of which are developed from the bottom up every year. Pretty much every penny is accounted for. Although naturally build in some, especially in the innovation side, some slush funds for things that, hey, we probably have X number of studies that are going to need focus groups. So we'll just put in a slush fund for that. Or we have X number of studies that are going to need this kind of follow up. So, but we don't know exactly how many. So we'll just put in a slush fund. So a lot of the experimentation comes in, you know, identifying low risk studies where we can experiment, you only need a few thousand dollars. And you know that it's going to be kind of a rounding error in, in the overall yeah. budget that you some things that you thought, if you have, you know, something that you put in $60,000, you know, that it's probably going to come in, you know, it, sometimes it's going to come in at 65, sometimes it's going to come in at 55. And enough of that comes out in the wash that you can do a little bit of experimentation throughout the year. But I don't have kind of a fund that I get to play with. You know, I don't have a you know, 10 or $20,000 fund line item in my budget that is, you know, Karen's learning new techniques method. Additionally, there are times where, you know, if we find something new and I need, I need funds and I can't squeeze it out of one of our existing budgets, I go to the brand marketer that I'm working with and saying, hey, I think this is the way that we can answer the question, but I need to, I need your budget to fund it and then they'll do it too. But a lot of those little those little trial type error are things are just like rounding errors where I know that, you know, the budget was put together, but some things are going to come over. Some things are going to come over under so we can squeeze this in. Got it. And it's an important lesson for prospective vendor partners to also understand that dynamic. Cause I can't imagine you're alone in this and understand that, Hey, you got to make it easy for me if you're supplemental and you're new. And if you don't mind, I want to unpack the budgeting process a bit because I think it's useful for people to learn how because you said it so easily, but I imagine a lot of people struggle with it, but it strikes me that your budgeting process works for you because of what you said at the beginning of the meeting, which is, Hey, I focus on relationships with these people. I'm understanding them. And so it makes that conversation with the marketing person easy. Like, Hey, I think this is a good way, but I actually need to two X the investment because 
I'm not sure. And I also want our basic max diff or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so take us through this process. So it, when, when in the year do you do it? And are you using historicals or are you, are you doing discovery with innovation teams and brand teams to understand their learning? Like how does it all come together from your, in your world? Um, it's funny because we're on the calendar year. So typically my budget is quote unquote due in August. Um, but okay. obviously brand planning starts much earlier than that. Um, usually sometime in the spring. And as soon as the brand managers start outlining what their brand plans are for the next year is when me and my team start kind of just keeping track of, hey, this is what this is what's going on. Do we know what is do we know what is going to happen or hey, are they going to need to track that program, et cetera? And just kind of start thinking, keeping in our in the kind of the back of our heads of what might be pressing or what might be interesting and also keeping in mind what are the big issues that we don't have information on that are pet projects of leadership that are and the more foundational stuff that we look and say when's the last time we did an R&D on this type of product we did an A&U on this type of product um and try to cycle those in naturally into the into the plan and then usually by summer once the brand plans really start gelling that's when we can sit down with the, each of the brand marketing teams and say, okay, what are you thinking in terms of your insights needs and et cetera, and really start outlining, here's the initiatives that they're going to need funding for. Um, and then on the same side, on the innovation side, doing the same thing with the innovation team in terms of, that's actually usually probably easier because we know where things are in the pipeline and we know, okay, that there's so many things that are still in the fuzzy front end. There's so many things that are in the concept phase. So many, these things are the things that are likely going to become projects. Here's the potential test launches and being able to outline it that way. Um, so I really think it is just really being integrated in the overall brand planning helps our, our budget come together. I, I So I, I, I'm somebody who does budgeting here at Zappi and it's, it's so different, but so similar mm-hmm. because there's like data, there's discovery, there's big corporate projects, there's, hey, we, we probably will need anticipation, as you said. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's as, as like with many things, it's an art and a science, <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> um, but, it, it, you know, it does strike me that it, it works well for you because I've seen you now work in two different companies and you've had a, a pretty thorough pulse on your calendar from what I've seen in both. So it brings me back to how connected you are in the business. Um, So you've said a lot in this meeting. We're running out of time. I want to ask you two more questions, if you don't mind. Okay. How do you go about building really productive cross-functional relationships as an insights partner? What are some of the things that you do to make it so that you're welcome into those brand planning sessions and that when you challenge the brand teams with a cool story or a data point or what have you, it's met with open ears. Cause I, I think Karen, you've probably had a few, a few chats with other insights people who are really struggling to integrate with more. And I, I pick on marketing, but it could equally be mm-hmm. R and D or, or finance or what have you. So how do you go about like, Let's just say tomorrow you're starting a new job at company X. What's your process of really getting around the tables that you need to be? Probably the first thing I do is I try to set up in-person consumer research that I invite them to. I, that's probably the worst part so far right now of COVID is not traveling for research because that time traveling together and 
you know, whether you're going to in-homes or spending hours behind the glass at focus groups, those are great times to build relationships. Not only are you learning about the consumer, you're learning about each other, you're going to dinner in the, you know, late after an exhausting day and talking about random crazy stuff. Mm. And you're really creating that personal relationship. And again, it comes back to that selling and consulting that it's much easier to work with someone professionally when you know them a little bit personally. And I think that creating those personal relationships is important. So uh, one thing I had the benefit of is we did this in this huge project um, related to occasions related to breakfast and dinner that required in-home immersions in multiple cities over the first year, my first year at Johnsonville. And during that time, that project, we intentionally wanted it to be very cross-functional. So not, not only did we have marketers, we had people from R&D that were that came and participated and were part of the part of that effort, I was giving them the gift of, I want you to listen to the consumer firsthand, take a step out of your product developer life or take a step out of your sensory life and, and come into mine for a moment and inviting people into my world. And then they understand the value of that so that when they want something, when they, you know, when our, or I want something from them, it, it works much easier. Additionally, when I can't, create that situation where I can get like, for example, the past year, I really, whenever there's new marketers or new people in key cross-functional team roles, whether they're from internally from just a different part of the company or an external hire, I really reach out to them and I spend time to say, Hey, here's the consumer insights information I have that I think you need to know. This will help you do your job. It'll help you get get up to speed and give you some knowledge that you don't have right now that you need to know so that when you go into that meeting and really helping them understand and help helping onboard them and then that again creates that relationship that they uh, that they can see me as a trusted partner that really cares about their success as well i love it so number one don't underestimate building relationships and their importance it's and it's increasingly hard to do now so you don't get to do shop along so how do you do that Number two, find ways to create empathy. These are my takeaways from this because I'm loving yep. this. And then number three, you're providing proactive value. So in the cases where you're bringing this data, they're not asking you. You're like, hey, I'd like to share this with you. Um, and I, I think, I mean, all three really resonate with me. All right, last question. We have, a, we have an unfortunate economic dynamic in, in the world. There's, there's far too many great, talented, incredible people looking for jobs. Let's just say all of a sudden you have a few open headcount or somebody was calling you for advice. What is some advice you would give to people who are looking to enter into a corporate insights role in terms of how to stand out and some of the skills that they should be, they should be building while they're looking for jobs so that when they get in an interview room and ultimately even more importantly, when they get that next opportunity that they're successful. Do your homework. That's, that's just basic job advice, but I, can't, you know, it's surprising the amount of people that you see come into an interview and you can tell they haven't, they haven't gotten to know what they can know from just reading my company website and, and use that knowledge to, if you're asked to share an example, think of, even if you're in a completely different industry, think of a relevant example of that you, from your past of a company going through a similar type of change that, that you think this company is going through. I, and ask good questions because especially insights 
people are detectives. We, yeah. we have to understand. And if you don't show that you can ask good questions and you can't, you aren't comfortable being the interviewer and providing good answers as well. And be honest. If some, if an interviewer asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, don't dance around it because insights professionals, our currency is the truth. Our currency is facts. And we have to be able to present ugly facts as well as, as beautiful facts. We can't be salespeople. And in an interview, you're selling yourself, but at the same time, recognize being able to show that you are at the at, you're at the limit of your information you know if someone asks you something or if you don't have experience and you can honestly say that that's important for me because I've worked in situations where I've had people that can't say I don't know and it's it, you can't put that person in front of stakeholders because we have to be able to you know, deal in the truth and we have people have to know that we're not selling we are the advocate for the consumer and we and being able to show that you can say I don't know in an interview is I think critical because you know I've been asked interview questions when I've interviewed and I'm like no actually I don't have any any experience in that but I'd love to learn about it so you don't have to you know, just leave it of how oh, I don't know you can still say that you'd be interested but you need to admit when, when you don't know, because that's something that we as professionals have to be able to do. I, I love, I love that part of the advice because I've been, I've been um, on this journey to bring a lot more DNI into how we recruit. And what I've noticed is people who are naturally more introverted are at a disadvantage from the linear interview processes because you have your polished extrovert who has a really good boilerplate answer for everything. And I think that advice creates space for the introvert. And I believe everybody should be more comfortable being more vulnerable, but Hey, you know what? I don't know the answer or to your point, I'm curious to learn, or it's actually a really great question. Can I ask you another question or how about I sleep on it and get back to you? Because not everybody is going to be able to shoot from the hip and nor, nor should they be able to, nor should we be building teams that have that. So I'm, I'm glad that you shared that perspective because um, not everybody's the alpha that we are taught to be on professional networking sites. And I think it's a bit of um, BS. On the exact opposite of a bit of BS, you've dropped some knowledge in this interview, Karen. I can't thank you enough uh, for your time. I, when I was thinking about season two being all about education, you were one of the first people I thought of because um, I knew without trying, you would be bringing the heat for people. So on behalf of everybody who's going to get smarter from listening to this, Karen, I want to thank you. Uh, I appreciate you. You're a wonderful friend and a great advocate for consumer empathy in the world. Um, so keep kicking ass, Karen, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Ryan. And I look forward to someday maybe having a mojito with you in Miami again. Oh my gosh, doesn't that sound so nice? <laughs> So Patricia, what'd you think? She's just amazing. It's always such a pleasure to just to listen to her and how easy she makes it. And then when you asked her the really pointed questions, how she was able to summarize and kind of let people know her secrets and just share with that. That's one of the things I love about these conversations, how these insights gurus are just sharing with us their insight secrets. Yeah, I love it. What, I, what struck me with Karen too, Patricia, is like stuff that comes easier to her is something that maybe a peer of hers in another company just is struggling with. So um, it was funny because I, I felt like she was so matter of fact about things that were like to a lot of others. Yeah, so um, exactly. 
So, so let's distill it down. What were some of your key takeaways? I've got this one. I listened and I paid really close attention because I'm always wanting to learn. But you know how I usually I take and I make a name for the people that we're interviewing? Well, she's got two names. I couldn't, I couldn't settle on one. She's the curious consultant and the intrepid detective. That's exactly who she is. I love so that. She's got four areas of her life that she shared with us. I'm all about navigating change. The first one is about how to maintain a growth mindset and how to learn new skills in that growth mindset, which is something that we all need because we all have to keep reinventing ourselves in order to be fresh. She had four points on that. The first one was keep your natural curiosity, you know, be a detective. She says that, and she talks about the, you know, the questions to ask when you're a natural detective. But if you just put your Sherlock Holmes hat on, immediately your brain changes. Number two is know when to learn and know when to unlearn. Some mm -hmm. things you got to keep and some things you just got to cut, right? The third one is don't be afraid to try. I love it when she said it shouldn't break. And if it does, it's not your fault. It's its fault. So don't worry about it. I love that. And the fourth one, which she sprinkled throughout her conversation with us is get creative about funding. She's amazing. She either budgets for it creatively. She rounds up. Let's just put it that way, right? She also makes the, the vendors partners. And so she yeah. helps them and she's an alpha or a beta tester. And the third one, she has some stakeholders that she knows will partner with her to help her with budgeting. So that was the first bucket, growth mindset and learning new skills. Second budget was she had very pointed advice on insights, to, you know, for insights professionals that want to change from vendor to corporate research because she's mm -hmm. got that amazing experience. And she bucketed into two simple topics. Simple. One, develop a relationship with your stakeholders. Oh, okay. I'll do that. Why? Well, because with stakeholders, you have to have a consultative mindset. You have to identify what they really need not be an order taker. Three, you have to create empathy. Invite them into your kitchen. Invite them into your world. Give them firsthand access to the consumer. And four, gift them proactively. Show them you're invested in their success and give them value even without them asking. And then the second part of this one was partner with your vendors. They're not vendors. They're your partners. Help have, Use them to help you problem solve. Use them to help you teach you new technologies. Use them for funding. They're amazing. So she has those two simple things. Relationship with stakeholders, relationship with vendors. Third one, get creative and change your approach to the budgeting process. Now, I'm not going to worry about, she's got a, a specific fiscal year that she referred to, but let's not worry about fiscal year. She basically said, start your budgeting process at the end of Q1, polish it in Q2, and make sure it's finalized by Q3. So she starts early. And how does she start? She starts thinking about brand plans, big issues, pet projects, foundationals, all those things that she has going on. And then the second part is she looks about the four whys, which are not really four. They're like five or six. Who, what, when, where, why, how. So she thinks about those things, brand plans, issues, projects. And then she thinks about what she needs to learn about them. And that's how she plans. I simple, it. right? It is simple. I, I, I think the growth mindset thing, um, it's really on my mind. Like, And for me personally, like I, I'm trying to find a way to, to balance our commitment as a company to recruiting for diverse, inclusive audiences. But I, I actually think, um, and the, the tension that I'm about to bring up is how do we do that, but also hire, hire people who have a growth mindset? What are questions you can get at to interview? Because learning and unlearning is, I don't care if you're an insights manager. I don't care if you're an R&D person. I don't care if you're a marketer, an executive, an assistant. I don't give a shit what you're doing. You have to be able to learn and unlearn or you're screwed yeah. today. And, totally. and I think she really struck that like some of her preconceptions pre 10 years ago, she had to challenge and then she's able to iterate through those. And 
Um, anyways, it, it just really resonates with me because, it, you know, people have to, pe- I think people have that innate in them. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually struggling in my day to day for people who don't naturally have those skills to help them see those, those, you know, that as a, a thing that they need to be able to do. I really liked when she talked about being a detective or being a curious consultant. She talked about words that we use in kindergarten. We learn in kindergarten and elementary school, curiosity, investigate, detective skills. Those are all games we can play, right? And um, we're able to, to pull that back. Now, I know that to, to that point, there's one more section that she talked about that's going to feed directly into this tension that you brought up, which is yep. how to change your interview approach. Let me back up into what she talked about specifically on the growth mindset and learning new things and in, inserting change into a risk averse world. And that's something that's it's not it's not easy to do. Maybe I have a growth mindset, but the people around me maybe don't. But if, if we Good start. point. Exactly. If we start with baby steps, she talked about baby steps, which I love. And I have to admit, I love it because I love that term. I've always, when I interview, I interview for four-year-olds. I want to know how big the four-year-old inside of you is because at four is when we're so focused on the word why. Why, 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 why do the planes not fall? Why do the ships don't sink? So she is so focused on that. And then she takes that and she expands it into, into her world. And she helps people, you know, go about getting change, you know, go to go to go to risk averse people and show them how to change right and she does that by linking with people who perhaps are more risk less risk averse than others she starts with a low risk low opportunity situations right and then when it happens whatever she does whatever finds out she decides right away keep it or lose it i love that so she does that and then the other thing is she is really brave i mean she seems really calm but she's amazingly brave she goes and sometimes you just have to cut the cord all at once that's scary and sometimes you do she brought up the topic of tracking and i think that there is probably very there are probably very few companies in the world that don't have a tracker of some sort and changing your tracking is very difficult so sometimes you can go baby steps and do overlap or whatever. Sometimes you just got to cut the cord. No, we're not doing telephone interviews anymore because nobody has a telephone. We're going to cell phones or we're going yeah. to online, right? We're not going to have a trend. So what do you do before the trend? You find out what are the key metrics you want to analyze. Keep those two or three and then go for broke. Just go for it. That was amazing. It, it reminds me. So I was having a, I was having a discussion with, uh, with Mike McCunis yesterday. Do you know who Mike McCunis is? I, the name rings a bell, but I don't. So Mike ran Global Insights at Kellogg's for a very long time, and he's in uh, semi-retirement slash his second career. So he's teaching and he's doing some consulting work. Anyways, he exposed me to this this person named BJ Fogg. Oh, I love that name. Who's an expert in change management. And there's a book I just ordered on Amazon. I can't wait to read it called Tiny Habits. And it's all about those incremental baby steps. But one of the examples that came up in our discussion was we can say that insights people need to be strategic advisors, but somebody who's been in an environment of do the research project and shut up for 20 years is going to look at a big, big word like that and go, okay, I have to nod my head in this meeting. What do they actually mean? Right. And so the, the conversation got to like actually getting people to write down what they think it means so that they can internalize that, but also take incremental steps as you're talking about. It's something that, at least since you've been at Zappi, you've really brought into my thinking in terms of how we change our, our clients. Because for a company of our size, it's easy to turn on a dime because change is built into how we're built. But we can move way faster than a matrix, global, seven category CPG company. 
And my so, Queen Elizabeth ships that I always talk to you about. Yes. Where we go. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, awesome. I really enjoyed this, this interview. Um, as always, your synthesis is amazing. You want so, me to tell you what she took, what she talked about in the, um, changing the interview approach before we leave? Yes. Let's talk about that. She, that's what she left us with. And I thought it was a brilliant way to close the episode. She told people, she said, you'd be surprised how many people don't do this. It may seem natural, but number one, do your homework on the company. Go and go find everything you can read because you want to be successful in this interview. So you want to come yes. prepared. Number two, Share relevant examples from your past. So what does that mean? Look at the role you're interviewing for. Look at the company you're interviewing with and find examples from your past that will be relevant to the interviewer. Number three, ask good questions. You cannot enter the insights world if you don't prove to the person interviewing you that you're really good at asking questions because that's our job, asking questions. I love number four, right? Be honest. Sometimes you don't yes. know. Sometimes you just don't know, or sometimes you say, that's a really good question. Can I come back to you? Or, well, let me think about that because not all of us can think on our feet that fast. And it's okay to say, I don't know, or can I come back to you? Right. That's, that's a perfectly valid answer, right? It's much better than lying. And the last one, which seems as if it should be like the first, but I love it to be the closing, be the advocate for the consumer. You can't be in research. You can't be in insights if you're not the advocate for the consumer. And I thought that was a beautiful way for her to end the interview. And I think advocate is such a better word than the owner of the consumer, which I think is a problem for us as, a, as an industry. If we think about the tension of democratization of insights, yes. it's not our job to own it. It's our job to curate it and synthesize it and advocate for it. And I think she's- Make so it available. Better make it available. You know, I, I also, that what you what you reflect on in terms of not having all the answers, it, it really resonates with me. Um, you know, we, so we, we just made a very, a very senior executive hire. And it was funny because one of the pieces of feedback that came through in the interview process was like, oh, maybe so-and-so didn't have all the answers. And I was like, oh, but wait till you see her follow-up email and she has a chance to think about it overnight. And so, you know, I actually think it's important that hiring managers and people in any type of role are comfortable acknowledging what they don't know. And if the organization isn't willing to give you a chance because you're honest, introspective and need time to think, you shouldn't work for them. They don't deserve you. Don't go there. Don't go there, homie. Patricia, I miss you. I can't wait to see you in person soon. Now that you're about to get the second vaccination, I mean, sky's I'm, the limit. I'm ready, dude. I'm ready. I, Bring it on. We've said it all. Our next episode will come in a few weeks and it is with Jess Southerd from Mars, um, who I won't, I won't even tell you anything other than make sure you don't miss it. Yep. If you haven't subscribed to inside insights, please do please. That actually helps us spread the word to get this insight to other folks. Um, algorithms, they're tricky, Patricia. Um, if you have, uh, any feedback, we would love to hear it. We're trying to make this series as valuable for you as possible. If you know somebody who's doing incredible things, we want to hear from them. Please engage with Patricia or myself or email us at insideinsights at zappystore.com. And like us on LinkedIn, we have an Inside Insights page so you can help us spread the word and also share ideas with the community just like you who are interested in learning how to do our jobs better. Patricia, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Love you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.